Please be seated. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. As I mentioned in the beginning, we're continuing our our series on worship. Uh, This Sunday's sermon is is kind of really the kickoff sermon. (laughs) Uh, We talked about communion last Sunday. Uh, It it feels maybe a little bit out of order. We did it because it was a communion Sunday, and that was appropriate, of course. But um, worship as commendation, you know, that word commendation just means praise. It's uh, adoration. Okay, we've been doing a lot of that already this morning, haven't we? Uh, We do it every Sunday, but maybe a focus on it this Sunday. It is appropriate always for us to tell God how great He is, how glorious He is, how mighty He is, to to tell back to Him that which He reveals to us in His Word, right? We are praying back to God His words, we're singing back to God His words, and that's all very appropriate for us to do, good for us to do. To acknowledge that while we are filled, we have our needs met, no doubt, uh, when we come into worship. But one of the appropriate parts of worship is, God, you are great and mighty and powerful. And we want to praise you and acknowledge that. This is fitting into this series on worship that I sort of introduced last Sunday with the opening illustration, talking about the Reformation, talking about Martin Luther and all the changes he brought. We think about the theological things that he talked about, and yet, that actually meant changes on the ground for the churches uh, in, in Germany for sake of Luther, and, but all throughout Europe. Why do we do the things that we do? We talked last Sunday, why do we observe communion the way we observe it? Why do we say the things we do? What do we believe is actually happening here? Next Sunday, we're gonna go, I'm going to basically take you through our order of service and tell you this is why we include these elements. Uh, it's not an accident. It, we're not kind of flying by the seat of our pants. It's, it's, there's an order to this and a structure and a theme that we're trying to draw out. And here's, here's its intent. Some of that I'll do this morning. A lot of it I'll do next Sunday. But zeroing in this morning on this praise aspect uh, of, the, of our worship service. With that in mind, let me read for us Psalm 8. <clears throat> o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, now would you, having received our praise, would you Help us to continue in that praise as we, see, as we hear your word preached to us now. Lord, that we would behold wondrous things and that you would put praise in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Commentators disagree exactly the situation into which David wrote this psalm. 
Some suggest that he was already the king of Israel and that perhaps one evening he's standing out on one of the verandas maybe of his palace and he's looking out into the night sky and he thinks of the greatness of God and he begins to write these words. Others, and I would be in the second group, think that this is very likely David's first psalm that he ever wrote. As a young teenage boy, he's out in the fields one night watching over his sheep Everyone's sort of taken care of for the night. He's laying down to go to bed, and he looks up into the night sky, and he's overwhelmed at what he sees, and particularly the contrast that he considers, the greatness and the vastness of the stars, how big all the creation is, and why do you care about me? Why do you care about little old shepherd boy me and my life? Why do you have any care and concern over the amount of hairs that are on my head, and yet you do? But how did David know that? How did he know that God cared for him this way? Well, David probably knew his Bible. He knew Genesis chapter 1 that that told him that he, even he, this little, not insignificant to us, David's quite significant in the Scriptures, but thinking to himself as a teenage boy, I'm an insignificant person with an insignificant life, and yet God tells me I'm made in His image, and that He loves me, and that He cares for me. It's into all this that David writes these wonderful words, and they were meant to be sung, they were meant to be used in worship and praise, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I bet you've been in a situation similar to David before. You've been out in the evening, maybe you've been on a camping trip, and you look up into the sky, and you are overwhelmed at what you see. I've told you the story of my friend and I, we drove from Nashville, Tennessee to San Diego, California. That's quite a story in and of itself. I won't tell you all the details. We traveled around California and one night, in the middle of the night, we are a couple hours north of Los Angeles, we pull off on the side of the road, we are in the middle of literal nowhere, okay? Probably not a good idea that we stopped at that point. Anyway, and we get out of the car and we look and I've never seen so many stars, no light pollution, And I thought of Psalm 8. I thought of David. I thought of, wow, of course, I, having a bit more scientific knowledge than David did, the vastness not just of the stars that I see, but the, the universe and all that scientists tell us, the greatness and the vastness of all that is out there. Wow, what are you? What am I that you care? What, what am I in comparison to the greatness of this creation, Lord, that you would even regard me? Scientists tell us that there are millions of stars in our galaxy, and then there are millions of galaxies. In fact, it's a universe that is ever-expanding. It's getting greater and greater and larger and larger. Why then does God care about me and about us? In comparison, we seem to be nothing or at least a very small value compared to everything else, and yet that's not what God's Word says. It says we are of tremendous value. We have been given honor and dignity and significance, it says. One commentator said of Psalm 8, this psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who He is and what He has done, and relating us in our world to Him, all with a a masterly economy of words and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. Three ways I want to look at this passage this morning. The first is doxology, maybe the most obvious way. There's doxology, there's distinction, and then there's dominion. So the first is doxology. Psalm 8 is unique in the Psalter. 
It's one of the, it was one of the only psalms that focuses exclusively on God alone. A lot of the psalms do include that in their, in, in their verses there, but it's also talking to the nations, it's talking to God's enemies, it's even sometimes the psalmist is talking to his own heart and soul. This one is specifically and exclusively addressed to God only, praising Him for who He is, and in a majestic format. You know, we just came out of Christmas. You probably opened a lot of Christmas gifts. I don't know who it is in your house that's the best gift wrapper in the house. It's me, by the way, in my house. That's actually a complete lie. It is not me. It, I'm the worst. Lauren is the, the great gift wrapper in our house. She, she takes great care and concern, not just with the gift that she purchases, but the presentation of the gift. In her mind, that's equally important. The bow that's used the, the, the gift wrap that you use, she wants you to be impressed with the wrapping and not just the gift. I don't have time for that. Just give me the scissors and the tape and whatever. In fact, I think one year I wrapped Lauren's gift in some happy birthday uh, gift wrap. It just, whatever. It's the gift that matters. Who cares about what the gift looks like? Not so with her. This psalm has been wrapped beautifully for us, hasn't it? <laughs> Something happens in the beginning, and then it's mirrored in the end. We've used this language before. It's called an inclusio, something that's in the beginning and the end, and it's the wrapping of everything that comes in between, therefore suggesting to us that God's majesty should be praised all throughout the psalm, not just on the front and the back end. This psalm is to be used in public worship, and we should gladly be able to say the things that David says here. It should stir that within us. And what is he saying of God? He's glorious. His name, even, is above the heavens. God has sent His glory among us. His name should be on our lips in praise often. There should be celebration of all that He has done and all that He is. David is saying that the heavens, all of creation, cannot contain the glory of God. You know, this happens a lot in the Scriptures. I'll just mention two places. If you remember back at our Reformation service, Dr. Brian Chapel preached from Isaiah chapter 6. And what does Isaiah see in that vision? He sees the temple, and the train of the robe of God fills the temple. Just the train. We're not talking about the rest of the robe, and we're certainly not talking about the God who wears that robe. It's just the train that fills it. That the glory of God cannot be contained is the message there. He's too great. He's He's too wonderful and majestic. Solomon says in 1 Kings chapter 8, at the dedication of the temple, the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. He's communicating the same thing. God, we've built this wonderful place for your presence to dwell, but we know that it can't contain you. It can't contain your glory. All of creation that God has made, it too cannot contain him. The highest thing that we can comprehend, His glory is greater than even that. (laughs) The reason the creation, as wonderful as it is, cannot exhaust the glory of God is that He made it. He's not bound by it. He stands outside of it. And God wants us to recognize that, and David helps us with his words, doesn't he? So the first part, the first verse, in fact, is all about praise, and next we go to what? Who is it that's doing the praising? It's appropriate to praise. I hope you've noticed in the songs that we've sung already this morning, they've all been about that praise, haven't they? 
All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him the Lord of all. That's what we're trying to say. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. All thy works shall praise thy name. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Come on, everybody. Let's gather around and give him the praise that he is due. Who is it in this psalm that is praising God, or at least their praise is highlighted? We would expect not what is included here. We would expect, all, okay, all the kings and rulers of the world, all the great prophets and theologians, they have gathered around to offer this strong praise unto God. That's not what David said. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have ordained praise. The strength is coming from the most unlikely of places. And boy, doesn't God like to operate that way. Not from the strong and obvious things of society, but actually from the weak and unassuming places come often the greatest praise unto our God. And that's, that's what David is highlighting here. God in all of his radiance and majesty, we assume it's the powerful things. No, it's the weak things. We know this is how God operates. How often is it the little ones or the weak ones that are giving praise unto God and God wants them to come to him? Because he wants us to be reminded, it's all about my greatness and my glory and my majesty, even from the most unlikely of places. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's how God works. He displays His strength and glory in the weakest of instruments. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I think I say that a lot, but maybe, maybe I need to get a better defined list. Anyway, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's, it's Moses and the burning bush. And Moses has just seen this wonderful theophany, hasn't he? And then he immediately... <laughs> begins to tell God, okay, I know you want me to go talk to Pharaoh and you want me to lead the Israelites. I'm just not up to it. I'm not eloquent. They're not going to agree with anything that I say. And God's like, "I, I know you can't do this, Moses. I'm not choosing you because you're great and powerful and influential. I know that you don't speak well. I know everything about you, but I'm going to show my power through you. That's what he's doing with Israel anyhow. They're not the biggest, they're not the best, they're certainly not the brightest. They're not the strongest and they're not the mightiest. But God does mighty things through them. He chooses to work this way so that we know we can't boast, only boasting in him. Our kids on Wednesday nights are going to be going through the children's catechism. A wonderful opportunity for them to learn the great doctrines of our faith Questions three through five say this, why did God make you in all things? Answer, for his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Why ought you glorify God? Because he made me and he takes care of me. 
such simple theology. Just as we even heard in the very beginning of this service, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. It may seem silly in its simplicity. It's brilliant in its simplicity. Jesus loves me. How do you know that? The Bible tells me. Why is that important? That's God's Word to me. It's the simple things that are the wonderful things. God has chosen these seemingly weak things to strengthen us. Our gospel, the kingdom of God, may not seem like much. It might not seem like a mighty message, and yet it is the power of God unto salvation. We looked at the parable of the mustard seed back in August in our our series on vision of Westminster Presbyterian Church. The mustard seed is tiny and unimpressive. What could possibly come from this little seed? And yet it grows steadily until it dominates the garden. But not in any negative sense. It blesses. It blesses the other plants. Birds come and find their nest there. It starts small and weak, and yet it grows and it grows and it grows into something powerful. God has planned to establish strength from the most unlikely of places. In 1854, Confederate General Stonewall Jackson lost his first wife, Eleanor. She gave birth to a stillborn son, and she immediately suffered a severe hemorrhage, and just minutes later, she too would die. In just a matter of minutes, Stonewall Jackson's life completely changed. From the joy of having a son to not only losing that son, but also his wonderful wife. The next day, he wrote a letter to his sister, Laura, telling her what had happened. And in the course of that letter, he told her that he believed that he could submit to God if God strengthened him for the task. But he made no attempt to cover over his despair. And right in the middle of the note to his sister, he wrote this, But, oh, my sister, would that you could have him for your God. What a tremendous line. He's just suffered harsh providences of God. He's just suffered the loss of a child and his wife, and yet he ministers to his unbelieving sister in that moment saying, I know this just happened, and it's from the hand of the God that I serve. Oh, but sister, that you would know him, and that you would follow him, and that you would serve him. I can't think of a more ill-equipped person to be the mouthpiece of God in that moment, someone suffering in that way and struggling, why why God, why have you let this happen? And yet, look what comes out of his mouth. Indeed, it is praise. He seeks to evangelize in the moment. It's hard to imagine someone saying like that, something like that, and yet God used him in that moment. Sometimes the mightiest weapon in God's arsenal, as one commentator said, is not argument, not brilliance, not, eloquent, not, not eloquence, not philosophy, but the humblest believer declaring who God is and what He has done. So it's first doxology, it's second, it's distinction. God is glorious and mighty, <clears throat> and He cares for us. But not just that He cares for us, he's, he's crowned us with glory and honor and significance, the passage says. God's grace is seen in His setting apart mankind. All of what he has done is good, and yet man was created, and it was very good. You know, David's not questioning his importance. In fact, when he says, what is man, I'm not quite sure it's even a question at all. I think it's an exclamation. What is man? 
This is amazing, God, that you care for me and for us in this way. God, excuse me, David knows this. He knows Genesis chapter 1. He knows what it says of his being made in the image of God. The philosophies of our day, of course, don't agree with this. It says that man is meaningless. Our lives are meaningless. All of this is an accident. David will have none of that, will he? he he's baffled by the fact that God cares for him in this way, but he knows he is cared for. It's not cynical at all, the question or maybe the exclamation that he makes. He's just overwhelmed by it. He doesn't take this position because he figured it out. He takes this position because God told him so. God told him who he is. Why do you care for mankind? Have you ever asked that question? God, there's, is it 8 billion now, people in the world? I think it's about 8 billion. God, why, do you care about me? That's a whole lot of people to care for. Do you really care about my life? Do you care about what I do? Do you really care for my good? Indeed, he does. What is man? You know, the question of this is, is not just one of honor and dignity. It is that. But let's go a little bit deeper with it for a minute. It answers so many questions that our culture today has a very hard time answering. Where is my worth and where is my value? It's not in the things of this world. Your worth and your value is found in this passage. Your worth is not in the job that you have. It's not in your earning potential. Your value is not in your body, in the way that you look. That's not where your worth and value is. It's not in whether or not you're married. It's not in whether or not you have children. It's not in the things that you do in this world. It is in the fact that you are created in the image of God and He loves you. He has given you your worth and value. You don't need to find it anywhere in this world. Anywhere you look for it in this world, it's going to let you down. It's going to crush you. It's going to leave you at, well, I thought this was going to fulfill. It, it, don't, it doesn't because it can't. But He can. He ascribes that to you. So look to Him to understand that. We have lost, I think, this doctrine of creation, not that God created or how many days He created in, but that He created you for a purpose and you are significant. Here's the paradox of dignity, as one commentator said. What is man that you are mindful of him in relation to everything else? But my goodness, you are mindful of him. David isn't wrong to ask this question. But he, it brings him back to praise, which, of course, is where it ought to bring us. All the psalms on either side of Psalm 8, they're very clear about something. They're clear about the brokenness of this world. They're clear about sinners, and we are sinners. But Psalm 8 doesn't mention any of that. It's not because David didn't believe that. It's, that's not what he chose to focus on. And if you were reading Psalm 8 and you didn't know anything about the rest of the Scriptures, you might think that this world isn't that bad of a place, that it's not quite as broken and fallen as it indeed is. And that's because Psalm 8 is trying to point us somewhere, which takes us to our last point, which is dominion. If you read Matthew chapter 21, I encourage you to read it this afternoon, the first 13 verses. I think it's the first 13 verses. It's the triumphal entry. Jesus has come to Jerusalem, and He's riding triumphantly, although it may not seem it that way, riding in on a donkey, 
And who is it that first praises him? Hosanna. It's the children, isn't it? They are the ones that are laying the palm branches down. They are the ones that are initiating this praise. And the Pharisees, watching all of this happen, they're mad. How, why are you letting the children do this? Like, this is embarrassing that you would let the children be giving you this praise. And what does Jesus do? He quotes Psalm 8. Out of the mouths and babies, you have ordained praise. So he's saying of himself, they're fulfilling prophecy, they're fulfilling Psalm 8, and they are rightly giving me praise, which of course angers the Pharisees all the more, but it's fulfilling what David is telling us in this passage. Who is this man riding in on a donkey? He's not just anyone. He's the Messiah we have been looking for. But not only is Jesus deserving of the praise due His name, He is also the man of Psalm 8. He is the one who everything has been put under His feet. All power, all dominion has been given to Him. But the question, of course, that arises is, but it doesn't seem like that's the way it is in the world. Well, this is where Hebrews chapter 2 helps us. Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 9 says, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Again, it's quoting Psalm 8. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now, here's the part I want you to hear. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Well, that sure is right, isn't it? We don't see it yet, but we see Him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. What is the writer of Hebrews' point? No, we don't yet see everything in subjection to Christ, but we see Christ. And where is He now? He is seated on His throne He is seated at the right hand of the Father, which is a positional declaration of the authority and power that He has. He has gone there, telling us that one day we will reign with Him, and everything really will be under His feet. It's prophetic, even though it's already true of Jesus. Jesus has conquered sin and death. One day we will join Him in that conquering. He, everything is in subjection to Him now. One day, it will completely be so. Psalm 8 is saying, look to Jesus. He has already accomplished everything that we hope for. It's not what we see in our experience. It's not what we see in this world. We wish that all the nations would bow their knee to Christ. One day they will. We wish that everything would submit themselves to the, to the reign and rule of Christ. Well, well, one day, indeed, that will happen. Mankind does not yet enjoy everything that Psalm 8 says, but Christ enjoys it. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on this psalm, gives, I think, a helpful illustration. He shares a story from Michael Green's book, The Empty Cross of Jesus, trying to give a helpful parallel, I think, to this text. In the Middle Ages, it was believed that there was a pathway, if someone was to sail underneath Africa and then to the east, they could make it to India, this this sort of magical place, at least the belief of that time, with all the spices and wealth and more. Many had tried to make this voyage, and none had returned. 
But one man one day finally did it. Vasco da Gama, you probably know this story. He sails underneath the tip of Africa, which at that point had been named the Cape of Storms because no one had returned. He goes to India and then he triumphantly comes back to Lisbon, Portugal, and all the people that came with him were received as heroes. And in doing so, they renamed that Cape, which is what it is now, the Cape of Hope. They knew that it was possible to go to India to receive all these riches because someone had done it already. Someone had, had accomplished the task. And in, and in doing that, they, they even renamed the place that it was. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, therefore, that Psalm 8 is not some magical dream. It's something that is a reality in Christ. We don't yet see it in its fullness, but one man already is reigning on high. One man already has conquered the grave. One man already does not have the restrictions of sin and pain. And if we know him, we have that same destiny that awaits us. So in light of all this, in light of this distinction that we are important because of what God says of us, in light of this dominion that has been given to Christ that we will one day enjoy in, what do we do? We go right back to verse 1, and we sing out our praises to God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, that you would send your Son to do all this for us. You are the great God that tells us who we are and the significance that we have. You are the great God that the glory that you have, it cannot be contained because it's too wonderful. And what do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus, and we're reminded of His work and His grace. We're conformed more and more to His likeness, and we're enabled more and more to say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank You for Your Word to us. We thank You for this opportunity this morning to praise You and to thank You for who You are. Lord, we thank You for the honor and the dignity You've bestowed upon us, Your people. We don't deserve it, and yet You have given it to us because we are Your children. Lord, would You enable us more and more, yes, to bring our petitions to You, to to cry out to You, O Lord, in our need, for You certainly want to hear those prayers but to also to take time to stop and to praise you for simply who you are, our great God. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV texts may not be quoted in any publication made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.